I'd like to take a moment, if you will allow me, before we look at this passage and just say a big word of thank you. Um, if you're our guest today, we're very glad to have you. Um, my name's Jamie. I'm the pastor here at Redeemer, and I haven't been up here in seven weeks because this congregation uh, cared enough for my family to send us away and let us rest and be rejuvenated. And so on behalf of my wife, Suzanne, and my kids, we just say a huge word of thanks. It was a blessing, and we are excited to be back, and uh, we're ready to roll. I was actually nervous this morning. Like, my stomach, I was like, that hasn't happened in a long time. So um, it's good to be here. Um, those of you who led, those of you who preached, those of you who carried responsibility while I was gone. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I listened to all the, the John sermons every week, and I was like, man, that was good, and that was good, and that was good, and maybe I should just stay in Montana. Um, things seem good. So, huge thanks, and I'm eager um, to dive in, and I'm eager for our shared future together and the good things that I think God's going to let us do together. So, Thank you, church family. We love you, and we are we're very thankful. So today, we get directly to the heart of the matter. Our sermon is entitled, Finished. And it's not very creative. I think the main point in this passage is when Jesus said those three words, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So what we see in John 19 is central to the Bible. It's central to Christianity. It's central to the church. And rightly understood, it's central to the totality of history and the totality of the world. The hope of the world, the hope of the church, the hope for you and me is rooted in what happens here. Christ died. Christ will rise again. Christ and his spirit to minister to his people. And it all begins here in what's documented for us in John chapter 19. My favorite holiday on the church calendar is Good Friday, where I get to talk about in weightiness and in real detail the death of Jesus, whereby he paid the penalty for sin and purchased salvation for all who would ever come to him. And this hope is what I get to talk about today. So it's like an extra dose of Good Friday in 2018. So that has to make it a great year, right? That was a little bit funny. I've been working on that one. So thank you, Scott, for reading John 19 for us. Um, if you're new to listening to sermons or really you just don't want to listen to me talk for the next 30 minutes, here's the point. Jesus of Nazareth was God's chosen means of salvation. And he died on a cross to pay penalty for sin so that sinful people could be made acceptable to God. Jesus of Nazareth was God's chosen agent of salvation and by dying on a cross, he paid the penalty for sin and made salvation possible for sinful people. 
And when I say sinful people, if you're thinking about others, you've missed the point. That's us, me and you. Jesus is our hope. And so, to not bury the lead, we'll go conclusion now, and then we'll look at the text, okay? If that sounds good. You guys are going to be like, dude, just quit. We'll go home. But, but listen, listen. What is our posture toward one another and our posture toward the world? I think church history has shown us that Christians have tended to be deceived into being self-righteous. We've tended over time to be deceived into acting like we are morally superior. We've been tempted to be deceived to act like we're the ones who have all the right answers. And if those stupid people out there would just get our answers, everything would be better. But that's not our message at all. Our message is we are wretched people, but because of Jesus, we can confess our wretchedness and face God knowing that God paid the penalty for our wretchedness at great cost to God. What we see in John 19 is that story. And so I'm begging you, I'm begging you to hear the story, to be moved anew by the story, because this is our Introduction. Now, if you want me to prove to you that that's what this passage says, three points. Number one, for my note-taking friends, a real event. A real event. What we read here in John chapter 19 is a real event. It is not fake news. It's a real event. And maybe I am posturing myself to you as a Neanderthal, but I believe that every Detail in John 19 happened as written to accomplish the will of God to purchase forgiveness and salvation and righteousness for the people of Jesus. This is not fake news, but it's real. And now I challenge you because we live in an entertainment culture where we respond to tragedy and suffering by just turning the channel or by checking Twitter, let's not do that today. But let's dwell in the factual reality of what happened to Jesus on our behalf. We got new, our news coverage it, 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 it inculcates this, right? Anybody watch the evening news? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. I'm actually a fan of not watching the evening news, but, but this is how the evening news is structured. Fourteen infants were slaughtered in a massacre in Uganda yesterday. And now in sports, the Predators won last night three to nothing, right? Like, like, like we as a culture have lost the ability to have reality impact us. We just move on to the next thing. And this is the reality that must impact us. As I am pleading with you today to hear a horrifically tragic story that purchased unbelievably splendid and glorious hope. 
And also, who here grew up in church? Just interested, this is like a, a straw poll, grew up in church. You've heard these stories since you were eight months old. Yeah, 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 Jesus on the cross, Pilate, Jews, crucify him, cross, spear. Yeah, that was bad stuff, but he rose again. Yeah, yeah, he, he did. Hear me, he rose again. But he suffered brutally. Physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually separated from his father. The father turned a blind eye to him for the only moment in the history of the world because he poured his wrath on his son. That is all real. It's real. And I believe that if we believe that it's real and we allow this reality to enrapture us and overwhelm us and cause us to dwell upon it, it will change things. It will change things. And I want to be a, a person who's changed by Jesus. And I want you to be a church of people that have been changed by Jesus. And if you're our guest today, I don't care if you're from Albuquerque or if you live next door or if you're a member at Long Hollow, I'm glad you're here and I want you to be enraptured and changed by Jesus. And it all starts with the difficulty of the cross. So, the facts of this story that I'm asking you to listen to. Jesus of Nazareth was brought before a Jewish trial, which Stephen Carlson led us through last week in John 18. Jesus of Nazareth was then brought before a Roman trial. It's a governmental trial, so a religious trial, governmental trial. And that picks up in verse 1 as we have Jesus before Pilate, who was a government official. The charge against Jesus was claiming to be the Christ. Um, so if you're new to the Bible, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a statement of who he is. Christ is a word that means Messiah, the chosen one, the king of Israel, the king of the nations, the one that God sent to bring God's blessing to God's people. And so when Jesus said, I am the Christ, he was saying, you need my salvation. He was saying, I'm your only hope. He was saying, I stand as the true king. And what we see rolling through this passage is this whole thing about whose king is he? Pilate says to the Jews, he's your king. And they're like, no, he's not. Caesar's our king. And if the irony of that doesn't set in, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. The Jews say, Pilate, you should kill him because he thinks he's your king. And the reality is, they were all right. Because Jesus was the king of Israel who brought God's blessings to the people of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus reigns over the earth and not anything happens on the face of this earth outside of the control of his power and his sovereignty and his word. And so, yeah, he's the king. And I'm never going to get done with this sermon, but we'll go home on time. So Jesus was accused 
of the seditious act of claiming basically to be everybody's king, and there was reason for everybody to be upset, and yet underneath all of that, there's this weird political, civil, religious back and forth where nobody can find anything against him. And on numerous occasions, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Do something with him. And then in the beginning of the passage, Pilate says, hey, I tell you what, we'll give him a, a light shaming and just kind of say, tis, tis, don't do this again. But the Jews are like, that's not enough. You have to kill the guy who's claiming to be the king of the Jews. Because they knew to claim to be the king of the Jews was to claim to be God. Because God was the one who was going to redeem the Jews. So Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. He's flogged. And in the flogging, he is shamed. Do you guys remember middle school? Did anybody here enjoy middle school? Like anybody? I mean, your body's doing awkward things. You feel awkward things. You feel self-conscious for the first time in your life. And people are just mean and everybody's posturing and like they're doing anything they can to make you feel exposed and better so that they can feel better about themselves. Like that's middle school, right? That's what's going on here. Let's shame him. Let's put a robe on him. Let's put a crown on his head that'll hurt and make him bleed and let's beat him and let's mock him and let's say, save yourself. He was flogged, he was shamed. There was an attempt to release him, thwarted by he had to be condemned. Another attempt to release him, thwarted by the Jews demanding that he be crucified. And so you have this weird political, civil, religious back and forth that ends with Jesus being given over to be crucified. And Jesus is then crucified. And see, I think we've so churchified the word crucified we just go, oh yeah, he, he, he was crucified. I mean, we, we have to get our minds around the fact that crucifixion was intended to be vicious. It was a prolonged death by asphyxiation. Have you ever been in a place where you couldn't breathe? Like you got stung by something, or you ate the wrong kind of food, or you got put in the wrong room at the wrong time, or your submarine started leaking, or, or whatever. I mean, have you, have you been in a place where you couldn't breathe? Crucifixion was a method of capital punishment intended to slowly suck the life out of someone so they could feel the agony. Not only that, it was intended to be savage. In a typical crucifixion, the bodies would be left on the cross for days. Not only have they died, but they would let the crows come and feed upon the body. It was intended to be humiliating. The person is hung either naked virtually or almost completely naked to expose themselves fully before a watching world. A charge is hung over their head. In the case of Jesus, the charge was king of the Jews. Crucifixion was intended to deter others from committing the same act. So Jesus was flogged, he was shamed, he was beaten, he was scourged, he was forced to carry his own cross to the hill where he would be killed upon it. 
He succumbed to such exhaustion that someone had to help him get the cross there. He was nailed to it. Not to mention... died there, he breathed his last, and it was real. This wasn't a religious game. It wasn't God playing. It wasn't storytelling. He really died. He really breathed his last, so much so that he was pierced in the side with a sword, and he was dead. He was buried in a tomb. Because he was dead. So this is a real story of things that really happened. But it all pushes us to the question of why. Why did it happen? And it happened to fulfill God's designed purpose. So that leads to our second point. Substantial significance. What happened upon the cross was the plan of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from before the foundation of the earth to pay the penalty for the sins of humanity at great cost to God himself and God the Son, whose name was Jesus. Just see if I can point out that this was actually what God desired. Chapter 18, verse 11, Jesus told his disciples and Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And in that moment, he's referring to what was coming, his arrest, his betrayal, his trial, his flogging, his shaming, his beating, his death upon a cross, his burial, Everything leading right up into that resurrection moment. Jesus is saying, shall I not face the cup that the Father has given me? So hear that. The Father gave the Son the calling to go to the cross. And so in this cross episode, we see four things. We see the life and teaching of Jesus come to its complete fruition. You see, the life and teaching of Jesus come to its complete fruition. Jesus said, my hour has come. I'm going to drink the cup that the Father is giving me. I'm going to allow myself to be called the Messiah, the Christ, the King of the Jews, and I'm going to go and I'm going to die. Second, we see Scripture is fulfilled. Scripture is fulfilled. Three times in this passage, verse 24, verse 29, and verse 37, we're told that very nuanced, specific things happened to Jesus on this day so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Things like when they were mocking him, they took off his clothes, verse, uh, leading up to verse 24, but his tunic, they didn't divide, but they cast lots for it because it was a nice tunic, and by casting lots for it, the scripture was fulfilled. Verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, I 
thirst. And they run, think, they run liquid up to him on a pole so that he can take it. And he said, but we're told that he said that to fulfill the scripture. Verse 36 and 37, in a normal crucifixion, if they wanted to hurry it up, and in this case they wanted to hurry it up so they could get the dead bodies off the cross before the Passover, because the people that killed Jesus didn't want to break any religious laws. But anyway, that's another story for another day. So to hurry it up, if you're on a cross to catch your breath, you push up with your legs. So normally they would break the legs. But in the case of Jesus, he looked like he was already dead. So instead of breaking his legs, they punctured him with a sword. And in so doing, they knew he was dead, right? I mean, if I punctured you with the sword, you would respond. But if you're dead, you wouldn't, okay? There you go. Like, you got to be a Bible scholar to get that. And, um, but we're told that in his legs not being broken, the scripture was fulfilled. But don't these just seem like Excuse the potential blasphemy, but don't they seem like kind of meaningless, unimportant details to the story? Like his leg didn't get broken, he, drank, he said he was thirsty, they didn't divide his garment. Like, 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 why is that such a big deal? John's including every bit of that because he's saying God has been speaking about this event through his word for centuries. And the purpose isn't all the, the, the nuance and, and, and missing the forest for the trees. The purpose is God's word stands. The purpose is God's promises will always be fulfilled. The purpose is what God's always been up to is coming to fruition. The purpose is God's will was that this moment would happen to accomplish God's salvation and God's glory. So life and teaching of Jesus were completed. Scripture was fulfilled. God's will was fulfilled. Fourth, salvation was purchased. So Jesus said, it is finished. That's verse 30. And we're told he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And his earthly life and ministry was finished. If you're one to write in your Bible, I would encourage you to, to highlight or underline those three words. It is finished. What was finished? I'm going to allow the Apostle Paul to answer that question for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That was 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. So let's take that in reverse order. Paul says this, God the Father made God the Son, Jesus, to, to take on our sin, and what happened upon the cross when he died and bore the wrath of God allowed us to receive God's righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. So a transaction happened on the cross when the righteous one who deserved glory gave his life so that those, and was punished like a sinner, so that those who were sinful could receive 
his righteousness and receive his glory. A transaction happened on the cross. Jesus bore the wrath of God so that sinners could receive the salvation and the presence and the love and the the being a child of God. So what Jesus did, we're told, reconciles us to God. So on the cross, salvation was completely purchased for us. So that leads directly into the final point. Third point, note takers, vital response. So a real event, substantial significance, vital response. How do we respond? How do we respond to this declaration of Jesus upon the cross that it is finished. Number one. And by the way, in this point, I'm going to use running through chapter 19, the response of the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people at that particular time to Jesus as a way for us to learn that our response matters. Okay? So number one, we learn that how we respond to Jesus matters. We learn that how we respond to Jesus matters. Jesus came to bring God's blessing to God's people. And here in chapter 19, we see God's people rejecting Jesus. We see the, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob rejecting Jesus. They give him over to be crucified. Just, just, just watch this interplay. They give him over to be crucified. We want him killed. The religious, not the religious, the civil leaders say he shouldn't be killed. No, we want him killed. He shouldn't be killed. So so to get him killed, they appeal to a political leader as their highest authority. So God's people claim that Caesar is their ultimate king as a way to get Jesus killed. I think we can all agree that that movement was a rejection of God, a rejection of God's Son, and a rejection of God's ways. So I think we can take from this story that how we respond to Jesus matters. And it would be the will of God that we would respond to Jesus with acceptance, with worship, with confession, with humility, with contrition, with need, and with pleading. Everything that we don't see in this passage from those who rejected him. Second thing that we learn about our response to Jesus from this passage is that the the kingship of Jesus and the work of Jesus might be different in reality than what we expect from him or what others tell us about him. The kingship and the work of Jesus might be different in reality than what we expect from him or what others tell us about him. The crux of the matter between the Jewish people and Jesus in John 18, 19 is they wanted a Messiah that looked like this and they got a Messiah that looked like this. 
They expected a Messiah that did these handful of things, and they got a Messiah that did something totally different. For example, they expected a strong, politically, earthly, look at me and follow me now, demonstrative type of Messiah, and they got a humble servant, teacher, who quietly went and did the will of God to do what they didn't even know that they needed. You see, you see that? Now, I'm not going to start talking about Fox News and MSNBC and politics and the gubernatorial election. I'm not going there. Fear not. We're not that kind of group of people. But Christians today, we are prone to try to make Jesus into the image of what we want. And we must learn from this passage that God sent His Son to do what His Son needed to do, and the Bible shapes that, not our expectations of Him. And the Bible shapes that, and not what our mama said, and not what our grandmama said, and not what grandmama's pastor said. The Bible shapes that. Jesus shapes that through His Word. And we just got to open ourselves up to say, we will want the kingdom that Jesus died to, pur to purchase more than we want the kingdom that we lust after. Gosh, that could be a whole sermon. I'll have to come back to that. Third, we learn in this passage that it is finished, finishes our need to be justified before God. Let me say that one more time. That it is finished from verse 30, finishes our need to be justified before God if we are in Christ. I'll speak to the Christians first. When Jesus breathed his last, he had taken all the wrath, all the anger, all the separation, all the distance, all the animosity that stood between our sin and God, and he bore it for us, such that when God looks upon us, he sees it no more. That's the gospel. So whatever you brought in here today, Whatever you brought here today feeling guilty about, confess it, trust that the blood of Jesus covered it, and receive that it is finished that Jesus offered from the cross. We don't have to perform for God because Jesus gave us everything that we could ever Man, if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you think I'm crazy because of what I've been talking about for the last 30 plus minutes, plus, I'm stressing plus, uh, but you think we're crazy? I, I just want you to hear this. Whatever brought you here today, maybe a friend invited you, maybe you felt guilty because you hadn't been going to church recently, maybe some bad stuff has happened in your life, maybe you're just desperate for answers Maybe you're, just, you're just, maybe you're just trying out all the religions to see what's out there. Like, I don't know what brought you here today, but whatever it was that brought you in here today, underneath whatever feelings of guilt and shame and fear that you're carrying is what the Bible calls sin. And the answer to our sin is what happened upon the cross and when our sin is taken away, we can confess who we are before God. We don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to fear God anymore. We don't have to fear condemnation anymore. We don't have to fear the consequences of our actions anymore. And we are truly liberated. And that's the good news. And I would invite you to that liberation today. Come talk to me. Look around. There's 
hundreds of people in this room that would love to have that conversation with you. I'm trying to decide if I want to do this next one or just move on. Oh, before I leave that, John leaves out a detail. I don't know why he leaves it out. But you can find it in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. And it's that little story of where Jesus is on the cross. And, and you know, he, wasn't, he actually wasn't crucified by himself. There were two criminals there with him, one on his left and one on his right. And, and one of them mocks him, but the other one pleads for mercy. And God, Jesus promises him salvation. I, mean, I don't know how much more guilty you can be, right? You're naked. Naked, excuse me, I've been told I say that wrong, I'm a redneck. <laughs> Naked, on a piece of wood, in front of hundreds of people, looking over one of the biggest cities in, the, in the, that part of the world, with a sign declaring your guilt, you've been pronounced guilty by the governor of the area, worthy of death, and you're about to breathe your last. I don't think there's any more guilty than you could be, right? And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So whatever your view of Jesus and whatever your view of the cross, it is finished could be for you too. Finally, It is finished fuels our lives as Christians. It is finished fuels our lives as Christians. And I want to get this out there, okay? How we live matters. Jesus died so that we glorify him in the here and now. He died so that we would display the power of his spirit at work in us in the here and now. He died so that we would not live today like we used to. He died so that we could be delivered from the guilt and the shame and the fear of our sin. He died so that we could be changed but what fuels all of that is that it is finished. What fuels all of that is that I'm accepted into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. So I'm pleading with you to let the story of the cross fuel gospel, kingdom, missional, risky living for the glory of God. Because that's part of why Jesus died. And we don't have to do any of that to earn anything, but the gospel is intended to fuel it. And one of my biggest frustrations with conservative, reformedish evangelicals is we love the facts of the story. Like we love those little nuances of like, oh, I never knew that before. But we forget that the point of all that theology and all the Bible and all the truth and all the nuance is so that we'll know God and by knowing God we'll be changed and we'll live for his glory. So if you're around here long, we're going to challenge you with the scripture. We're going to challenge you with the truth. We're going to challenge you with doctrine. We're going to challenge you to think deeply about God. But the purpose of all of that is to more greatly experience the deliverance that Jesus brought us and live more boldly and more joyfully and more freely because that's what he wants for us.